Before we get started with this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, I just want to warn you that the passage is vulgar. What a dramatic episode. It lasted from Canto 21 all the way to the middle of Canto 23, all about the political grift, those on the take, the barriters, people who take kickbacks. And I would like just to stop in this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, and look at the entire sequence. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is a little bit indulgent. It's a little bit part of the slow walk. But you know what? We have broken this passage up into many different smaller bits, and it's crucial just to step back and see the whole thing. So here's how it's going to go. I'm going to read you the entire passage from Inferno from Canto 21 all the way to where we stopped in Canto 23. I'm not going to do any funny voices. This is just going to be a straight reading of the passage. Please just sit back and enjoy this. Listen to it. Listen to the story as it develops. And then when we come out of it, I'd like to make some general comments that will help us understand this passage now that we know its full scope. This is part of taking a slow walk, is being able to stop and say, okay, in the fifth evil pouch, the fifth of the Malabolgia, in the big circle of Freud, we across a gigantic landscape of text. One of the longest passages set in any specific sin, so we might as well just slow down and look at this very carefully. Dante spends so much time on it, we might as well pay him the gift of our time. I'm going to start at Canto 21, Line one, the very front of that canto, and I'm going to go all the way to canto 23, line 57. Just sit back and let the story unfold around you. In this way, from bridge to bridge, while talking about things my comedy isn't bothered to sing, we went along. We'd reached the apex when we stopped to be able to see into the next cleft of these evil pouches and the next futile blubbering. I saw that it was amazingly dark as the Venetians in their arsenal boil the gluey pitch all through the winter to seal the boards of any unsound ships because they cannot sail then. And so instead, someone works on a new hull and someone caulks the slats of a ship that's made a few too many voyages. Someone hammers together the prow and someone else the stern. Others fashion the oars and still others twist the ropes. Someone else sews up the jib and the mainsail. Just this way, if not by fire, but by divine craft, the thick pitch boiled away down below, clinging to the banks on both sides. I saw the pitch for sure, but I didn't see anything in it except the bubbles levitated by the boiling, all seething up and then settling down deflated. While my gaze was stuck on the stuff down there, my guide said to me, Watch out! Watch out! Then he yanked me over to him from where I stood. At that, I turned around like a guy who looks almost too late at what he surely must flee. So dispirited is he with sudden fear, even if, looking back, he doesn't hesitate to take flight. And I see back behind us a black devil running right at us along the crag. Wow, how insanely fierce he looked and how disgusting his 
bearing appeared to me, with his wings spread wide and so light on his feet, draped over his shoulders, which were themselves sharp and huge. A sinner was clutched tight by the haunches and hooked through the sinews at his heels. From our bridge, the demon called out, Hey, you evil talons, behold an elder from St. Zeta in Luca. Dunk him under while I go back for another in that city, which is stocked up with this sort. Everybody's a barrator there, except for Bonturo. They morph no into yes for simple cash. He chucked the guy down and turned back along the hard crag. Man, a mastiff let loose never made off so fast after a thief. The guy went under, then turned over and resurfaced. The devils who were hiding at the bridge hollered, We ain't got no place here for the sacred face. You probably swim with different strokes in the Circio. That's why, unless you've got a hankering for our grappling hooks, you don't want to let a bit of you protrude from that pitch. At that, they slashed him open with a hundred barbs, saying, You're going to need to do your dances all covered up and grab at stuff, if you can, in the dark. It's the same way with chefs who make their sous chefs use their skewers on a hunk of meat to keep it down in the pot rather than floating up on top. My good master said to me, so that it'll seem as if you're not even here, squat down behind that outcropping to hide yourself from them. Hey, however offensive they get to me, don't get the jitters. I've got everything under control. I've already been through a scuffle like this before. After Virgil had gone on beyond the bridge's abutment and gotten over to the sixth bank, he had to put on his game face. With all the fury and chaos of a pack of dogs let loose on a poor beggar, the sorter just up and starts his pleading wherever he stops, they sprang out from under the bridge and parried all their grappling hooks at him. But he cried out, None of you better think you can hurt me. Before you stick me with your forks, one of you come over here to hear me out and then make a decision about ripping me open. They all cried, Send out evil tail. One demon stepped out, the rest stood firm, and came up to him, saying, How's this going to help him? Do you really believe, evil tale, that you see me here having come all this way, my master said to him, yet still safe from all your tricks without divine will and fate on my side? Let us be on our way, for it is willed in heaven that I show another this savage path. At that, the demon's pride fell so fast that he let his hook dangle down to his feet. He said to the others, don't anyone do nothing to him. At which point my leader called me, hey you, all smashed down among the rubble of the bridge. Now you can come back safely to me. At that, I forced myself to move and came quickly to his side. Then the devils aggressively advanced on us and I trembled lest they break their truce. One other time, I saw some soldiers in great fear as they filed out of Caprona, even if under a security pact, because they realized their enemies had surrounded them. I pressed my whole body as close as I could against my leader and didn't even blink in the face of the demon's looks, which for sure weren't very good. They lowered their forks and one of them said, maybe I should give him a poke in his tushy. And the others replied, yep, let him have it. But the demon who'd been holding forth with my master jerked around fast and said, heel, heel, tussle head. Then he said to us, 
It's not possible for you to go any farther along this spoke because the sixth arch is busted up all over the bottom of the ditch. But if it pleases you to keep going, stroll along the cliff right here. Soon enough, there'll be another arch you can get across. Yesterday, at a moment five hours later than this one, 1,266 years ago, that marks the anniversary of the tremor that broke the road. I'm mustering my men to go along that way and see if any sinner has come up for air. You can go with them. They won't harm you. Harlequin, step up. And Frost Trampler, too, he started to say. You too, badass dog. Curly Beard will lead the squadron. Lovecrack, come along. And Little Big Dragon as well as Tusked Big Pig and Mange Dog and Butterfly Imp and Crazy Red Face, y'all go have a look at the simmering bird lime and get these two safe to the next ledge that runs intact over the pit. Good grief, master, I said. What is this I see? Please, if you know how, let's go without any escort service. I, I'm not asking for one on my account. If you're just as cautious as always, can't you see that they're grinding their teeth and threatening us harm with their eyebrows? And he to me, I don't want you to be so afraid. Let them grind away as much as they want. They're doing that for the stewed sorrowers. They then turned onto the left embankment. But first, each of them stuck his tongue through his teeth to give a salute to their captain. And he used his asshole as a trumpet. I've seen knights break camp, get ready for an attack, and make their muster, and even retreat to save themselves. I've seen scouting parties in your land, you men of Arezzo, and even raiding parties, as well as the clash of tournaments and jousts at a full run. Some start with trumpets, and some with bells, or with drums and flares from the castle, even with native-born signals or ones from far-off lands, but never... With such a weird pipe have I seen a cavalry charge or foot soldiers advance or a ship set sail with a signal from the land or a star. We walked along with these ten demons. Wow, what? Such a ferocious company. But in the church with saints, in the bar with boozers, my attention was completely on the pitch to see every particular about this pouch and the people burning inside it. As dolphins, when they make signals to the mariners with the arch of their spines so that those guys take precautions for saving their ships, in the same way, once in a while, to lessen his pain, one of the sinners would show his back and hide it again in a flash. And as at the water's edge in a ditch, frogs stand there with just their snouts sticking out, keeping their feet and their big bulk submerged. So the sinners position themselves on both sides. Just as Curly Beard got near... They sank back under the boil. I saw, and even now my heart still skips a beat, one linger a bit, just as you might see one frog hesitate while the others leap away. And Mange Dog, who was closest to him, hooked him by his tarred hair and hauled him on shore. He looked like an otter to me. I already knew all their names because I jotted them down as they were selected and then when they called out to each other. Oh, red face, make sure you sink your claws in him and tear the skin off, shouted the whole crew of evildoers at once. And I, my master, find out if you can who this is, this wretch who has fallen into his enemy's hands. My leader pulled up alongside him and asked where he was from. He said, I was born in the kingdom of Navarre. My mother put me into service for a lord after she conceived me with a drunkard who wasted himself and his earthly possessions. Then I went into the family of good King Thibault, where I figured out 
and I get in on the take, for which my accounts are squared up in this cauldron. And Big Pig, who had tusks like a wild boar's that stuck out from either side of his mouth, made the guy feel how one of them could gash. The mouse had fallen among grievous cats, but Curlybeard held the guy tight with his arms and said, Stand back while I pin him in. Then he turned to face my master and said, Ask away if you want to talk some more to find out about him before any of these brutes disembowels him. Thus, my leader, Okay, tell us, is there any Italian among the sinners under this pitch? And he, I just left one a moment ago who came from around those parts. How I wish I were still covered up with him, so I wouldn't be trembling at these hooks and claws. And Lovecraft said, We've hung out long enough. He lanced the guy's arm with a grappling hook and gave a big tug, ripping a hunk of flesh out of him. Little Big Dragon also wanted to hook him on down below through the legs. But at this, their decurion whipped around on them real fast with an ugly grimace. When they all hushed their fury a bit and the guy was still staring at his open lacerations, my leader grabbed at another chance to ask him, Who was it you mentioned from whom you took your miserable departure to come to the bank? He said, It was Friar Gomita. The guy out of Galuro, who's the very urn of fraud, who had his master's enemies in his hand and handled them so that each one sings his praises. He took their cash and on the sly let them get away, or so he says. And in other official duties, he wasn't a small-time grifter, but a kingpin. He's always hanging around Don Michael Zanke of Logoduro. When they talk about Sardinia, their tongues just won't wear out. Oh my... Look at that one, snarling through his teeth. I'd go on chatting, but I'm afraid he's getting ready to claw my scaly bits. The head honcho turned to Butterfly Imp, who was rolling his eyes up in his head for a strike, and said, Get back in line, you filthy little bird. The quaking sinner started up again. If you'd really like to see or hear from some Tuscans or Lombards, I can make them get out of there. Just make these evil claws stand a little to the side so the guys won't be terrorized by the demons holding onto their vendettas. Then I, sitting at this very spot, I'm just the one who can make seven of them come when I whistle. That's how we do it when any of us gets out of the pitch for a bit. At that, badass dog raised his snout and shook his head saying, what a base trick he's thought up just so he can dive back in. Then the guy, who was full stocked with big plans, replied, I'd have to be the basis of the base if I brought more suffering on one of my own. Harlequin couldn't hold back, and as opposed to the other demon, said to the guy, If you take the dive, I won't just come at you at a full gallop. I'll beat my wings to get over the pitch. Let's pull back from the cliff's edge to conceal ourselves behind the bank, and we'll see if all by yourself you're any match for our might. Hey, you readers. You're about to hear a whole new game. Each of the demons turned his sights on the bank's other side, with the devil out in front, who had been most opposed. The Navarrese timed out everything really well. He planted his feet firmly on the ground and, in a flash, took the dive and got himself out of their designs. At that, each demon felt the pangs of guilt, most of all the one who'd caused the blunder. He flew up and cried, "'Caught you in the act!' Little good it did him. His wings couldn't overtake the guy's sheer terror. 
That sinner went under, and the demon soared chest up in mid-flight, like when a puddle duck dives for the bottom the moment a falcon gets close. The bird of prey then swerves up again, all tormented and whipped. Frost Trampler was so angry for being made into a fool that he went flying behind him, hoping the sinner would escape just so he could pick a fight. When the barrator had dropped from sight, Frost Trampler aimed his talons at Harlequin and put a wrestling hold on him above the ditch. But Harlequin had been well and fully fledged. He clawed back pretty good until they both tumbled down into the boiling muck. The heat immediately made them let go of each other, but because their wings were enlimed, there was no way for them to rise. Curlybeard who was crying foul as much as the others, made four of the crew fly over to the opposite bank, each armed with one of their grappling hooks. Soon enough, they came down to their positions, stretching their hooks out to the stuck demons, who were pretty well cooked to a crisp crust. And so we left them, messing around in that ditch. Hushed up, by ourselves, without companions, we walked on, one in front, the other behind, like mendicant franciscans going down a road there's that fable by aesop i couldn't help but think of it because of this wrestling match the one where he talks about the frog and the mouse which are not much different than right now and right away when you compare one case with the other especially if we bring together the beginning and the ending with close inspection and just as one notion bursts out of another so another one was born from that one and which my first fear got doubled i thought because of us, those demons have been fooled with injuries and ridicule, which means they must feel the same toward us. If their bad intentions get wound into a hank along with anger, they're going to come at us even more cruelly than a dog's jaws bite down on a rabbit. At that, I felt a hair with fear bristle all over my scalp. I kept looking behind us when I said, Master Unless you can pretty quickly hide the two of us, I'm freaking out about those evil claws. They must be right behind us. In fact, I imagine them so well that I can hear them on the way. And he, if I were crafted from leaded glass, I would not mirror your outward appearance any faster than I feel your state of mind. Just now, your thoughts have joined up with mine, the self-same attitude and look so that I've bound everything up into a single council. If it turns out that the slope on our right lets us get down into the next pouch, we can get away from this imagined hunt. He hadn't finished detailing a plan like that when I saw them coming at us with their wings wide open, closing in fast with the intent to grab us. My master quickly picked me up like a mother who wakes up at the brouhaha, sees the flames right at hand, picks up her son, and gets out without a moment's hesitation, caring more for him than herself to the extent that she doesn't even put on a shift. So Virgil leapt from the rough edge of the cliff and started to slide down the slope on his back, the side that formed the closer wall of the next pouch. Water hasn't ever flowed any faster through a sluice as it rushes from a stream to turn the paddles of a mill's grinding wheel than my master went flailing down that bank, still holding me to his chest, not as if I were a fellow traveler, but his son. The moment his feet touched the floor of the chasm, there were the demons on the ridge above us, but there was no need to gasp out loud because high providence, which had made them the ministers of the fifth ditch, takes away their power of ever leaving it. 
a lot of time in one passage, but you know what? I feel as if that was worth it because for one thing, you just felt something if you sat with me through it that you don't often feel. You felt the whole sweep of the story, the whole arc of it, <laughs> of just like the dive that the narrative takes, the whole arc that that story takes. It's beautifully constructed. You know, while I love this slow walk, it is so amazing to get to see the arc of the thing. I wish that we could stop in the middle of this and go back and just start reading at Canto 1 and just read. Hey, I just want to say, I do that once a year, usually at January 1st. I sit down and I read the comedy and mostly I read it straight through as if it were, I don't know, a novel. I just read it straight through. I don't look at any notes. I don't look at anything. I just want to see it all happen in front of me as a giant sweep. And sometime, if you have a weekend, you probably would want to stop right now, go back to Canto 1, and just read right up to this moment. It would give you an unbelievable sense of the arc of where you've come, just as that passage showed off its arc really well. So let's talk about this for a minute and what happens inside of this passage. You'll notice that first, the story goes right over the canto breaks, and that is something quite new for us. While we have seen cantos flow into each other, and then we came across the great enemy Plutus, when we have seen cantos open up into each other, we've never seen them go quite so easily right over the canto breaks as happens here. That is a bit new, and perhaps it indicates, as some Dantes disclaim, a freedom on Dante's part. You'll notice, too, that the passage starts with a moment of silence. We walked along talking about things not in my comedy, and we end with this literary analysis and this whole song and dance about how texts create your perceptions of the world, and texts can even anticipate your, your reactions to the world, and texts can even help you anticipate what will happen in the real world around you. <laughs> Remember all that song and dance? And yet we start this whole thing by saying, oh, we walked along talking about things that I don't need to put in comedy. You surely see the irony there, the complex and crazy irony that the passage comes out at a point in which it says texts help you interpret and even anticipate the experiential world, but the whole thing starts with, oh, I'm not going to tell you everything we talked about. There is such a wry comedic sense that goes on throughout this passage. And you'll notice that long similes, here's the third thing, start and end the passage. We've got that whole Venetian arsenale, and then we come out of the story with Virgil, the mother, the flames, the water sluicing. And while we're talking about that imagery, notice how folkloric the imagery has become inside this passage. After we pass out of that Venetian image of boiling the pitch and fixing the ships, we pass into a set of ducks and frogs and women grabbing children out of flames and water wheels. I mean, we pass into a whole set of very folkloric and very commonplace similes. These are not the big, giant, epic similes that we've encountered previously in Inferno. Instead, these seem much more homey inside this passage. That should automatically tell us something about the tone, much more about the natural world, frogs, ducks, dolphins, all this natural world imagery that enters into this incredibly unnatural place. 
One more thing about this low-class imagery. It's in the canto a very high-class sin. I mean, dolphins and frogs and mice and whatever else we've got, water sluicing through a mill and a mother grabbing a kid. All of this stuff is very homespun imagery. But barratry or political grifting or taking bribes is really a high-class sin. So here, in amongst what should be the glittering people who are on the take, we get imagery that is very downscale. Surely that is not by mistake. Surely that is by design. Okay, what else can we notice here? Well, we can say that Virgil first turns Dante around, <laughs> right? Virgil is the first one to warn Dante early in the story. Virgil says, watch out. And Dante turns around and sees the demon running along the ledge. And at the end of the story, it's Dante who is constantly looking back for the demons to come running along the edge. So Virgil actually sees a demon and turns Dante around to see it himself. At the end, Dante doesn't yet see them, but he imagines them. And he's look, he's walking along with the backward glance as Virgil is going blithely forward. How shall I say this? Or to put it another way, the passage starts with uh, Dante walking blithely along and not realizing the danger. The passage ends with Virgil seemingly walking blithely along until Dante alerts him to the danger. There's an inversion from the beginning to the end. You'll notice that, here's another thing, the demon's wings are open at the start and the end. The first demon comes rushing along with its wings open and light on its feet. At the end of the passage, the demons are running after them with their wings spread open with the intent to catch them. That's surely set up intentionally to bracket the entire sequence. You'll also notice that when we step back and hear the whole passage, everyone is at one point or another fooled. Dante is first fooled by walking along blithely and not realizing there's a demon running along the ledge. Then Virgil is fooled about the demon's intentions. They clearly are out after our pilgrim and his guide, or they wouldn't come running after them as they slide down into the sixth ditch. The barrator gets fooled at first, pulled out by grappling hooks and torn a bit to pieces, and yet he himself does the fooling on the demons, everybody ends up ultimately in the moment of not knowing, of foolish, uh, what do I want to say, foolish uh, progression without forethought. <laughs> that sounds too, too absolutely highfalutin, right? But, you know, everybody ends up kind of in a blithe moment where they say, oh, what could go wrong? And everything goes wrong constantly. So I think that that's intentional in the passage. I think that it wraps the passage up. It seems to make an argument, if we kind of stand way back from the passage, that everybody can ultimately be taken in that there is nobody who is safe from grifters, no matter who you think you are, whether you're Virgil, experienced barriters, or demons, eventually everybody can become the mark. There's no way that you can hardly avoid it. And I think that's a nice bit with the passage itself. And one more thing about that question of being a mark. Is Dante... Virgil's mark. I mean, if we take Virgil as the frog and Dante as the mouse in Aesop's fable, 
Is that also part of being the mark or being made a fool? Is Dante in danger of being made a fool of by Virgil, who has a great deal of overconfidence about his ability to deal with demons? All very curious and causes a lot of questions to arise all throughout the passage. We should also notice that the passage gives us very definite ideas about the motivations of the characters. Dante's motivation, the pilgrim's motivation, is to know more. Virgil's motivation is to keep going, to get us through this, to the next, to the next, to the next. The demon's motivation is to torment the damned in the pitch. And the damned's motivation is to momentarily get out of the pitch for a little bit of relief. So everybody's got a pretty clear motivation here. And... In fact, most of the motivations come true, despite the fact that everybody is, in fact, a mark or a possible mark or everybody is capable of being fooled. In the end, their motivations hold true. Dante does get to learn something about the Navarrese out of the pitch. Virgil does get them on continuing on the journey. The demons do take their hunks of flesh out of the barrator, and the barrator does get to spend some time out of the boiling pitch. So everybody gets what they want, which is a really nice, ironic inversion in the overall arc of the story that is itself rather desperate and rather vile. And one more thing about their motives being so clear. If they are clear and we know what they want and they get essentially what they want in the end, does this say something about the providential nature of the journey? In other words, is this being worked out toward an end? If everyone's motives are so unbelievably clear and those motives in the end do get fulfilled, does it say something about the overall providential nature of the journey itself? I think it might. I think it's a little bit pushing to get there. I think I might be overreaching with that interpretation slightly, and yet I can't help but think about it since the motivations are so clear and the objectives are indeed obtained. And finally, at the end of it all, we should notice that Dante, our pilgrim, is apparently changing. He himself is now able to warn Virgil of the dangers ahead, and Dante is learning to anticipate the dangers of hell, whether it be from reading Aesop or from the experiential knowledge of hell. And I believe the pilgrim's ability to anticipate the dangers of hell mirrors what the poet wants you to feel about the dangers of hell. That is, having read this poem, you can anticipate and, in fact, avoid the dangers of hell. I want to remind you that I am not religious, nor am I reading the comedy as an exercise in religion, but I do think that the poet... <laughs> is quite religious. And I do think that that motivation is behind the poet. And if we want to pull it out of religion and say something else about it, what we can say is that what you read and what you experience become bound together in a fuller understanding of the world around you. And I don't care 
given that, whether we're talking about Virginia Woolf or Jane Austen or William Faulkner or Edith Wharton or Henry James or Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or Proust, what you read binds with what you experience to offer you further interpretations of the world. And that is the key to comedy. That's why comedy is so amazing because despite or because of the poet's intention of converting you, comedy is out to change you. And whether you buy its religious conversion or not, it changes me. It changes how I see the world. It changes how I think about the world. The poet is good enough to make the poetics of conversion true even outside of a religious experience. Comedy changes who you are, and that's why we're slow walking through it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope you just enjoyed the story for the story, something we never do, something that is important to comedy, to see the story. It is, first and foremost, a story full of bumps and ridges and arcs and ups and downs. And sometimes we can get lost in this podcast in the many knots inside the passages. Well, we, hey, I'll own it. I can get lost. It's nice sometimes just to step back and see the story for what it is, a story about a man who walks across the known universe, or in this case, fools around a little too close to boiling pitch. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, come back next time. They're down at the bottom of the sixth of the evil pouches. You know something's got to happen down there. You can't just fall down into the bottom of a pouch and just nothing happened. Have a picnic, (laughs) order Uber Eats, have a little meal and get out. No, you know something's going to happen. And in fact, what's going to happen, as I've already said, is going to eventually leave even Virgil slack-jawed. So come back next time. I'll see you then. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. I'm having a blast. I hope you are too.